Father, we thank you for today, Lord. We come before you and just uh, God asked it that we would uh, learn something from your word this morning, Lord. I pray that you would help us um, continue to live a life of worship, a life that honors you in everything we do. Um, God, we, we thank you for our church. God, we pray for direction as we proceed um, and direction um, in all the things, Lord, that we're trying to discern. Um, and Lord, I also pray that um, you'll forgive us uh, in, Lord, the sin that we've committed and help us also forgive those around us, Lord. We also pray for Evan. Uh, we pray for his work in Vietnam, Lord, that you would bless him and you would bless his ministry, Lord, and that it would be fruitful, God, if that is your will. We love you, Lord, and we need you, and we pray that we not forget your holiness and your goodness and your love and your justice. God, you are so good, and we thank you for everything you've done for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, uh, the last several weeks, um, aside from last week, as we had uh, Pastor Andy uh, visiting us last week, but um, before that, we had been in Jesus' exposition of the Old Testament law, and we've been there for uh, several weeks, and just talking about uh, Jesus' handling of Old Testament text, how Jesus comes to the people of his day and says, you have heard it said to those of old, this will I tell you this. And so today we'll be continuing in that study um, of this section of the Sermon on the Mount, we have about two weeks left this week and next week of Matthew chapter 5, um, and then uh, chapter 6 will follow that. Um, but Jesus has a pattern in, uh, in all of the expositional things that he does with each single one of these Old Testament passages. Jesus has a pattern when he says, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adul- adultery. And his pattern is to take these texts of scripture that we read uh, in the Old Testament and to look at them under, under his light in the New Testament and to say, what does this mean? How does this apply? How does this, does this go any further than the wooden interpretation that the Pharisees had? And just about every time in every single verse that Jesus brings up in every single Old Testament passage, Jesus furthers the interpretation of, of the text that he brings up past what the Pharisees and, and the religious leaders of their day had understood, past their wooden and sometimes legalistic and overly narrow uh, definition of many of these things. We learn through Jesus' words that prohibiting murder is not just a command to prohibit murder. Prohibiting adultery doesn't just prohibit adultery, and and so on. And we've talked about that uh, many times. And so today we're going to be studying Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 through 42. Let me see if I have the clicker on right here. Yeah, I do. I'd like us, I'm going to, you guys don't need to read it because we read it earlier, but I'd just like to read it one more time uh, before we start going into uh, what Jesus means in this passage. Um, So... Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 through 42. Oh, Isaac, could you go to the next slide for me? You've heard, it said, you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, don't resist an evildoer. On the contrary, if anyone slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. I got it now. As for the one who wants to sue you and take away your shirt, let him have your coat as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to the one who asks of you, and don't turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. These are the words of Jesus Christ. So Jesus here is quoting, uh, particularly beginning in verse 38, Jesus is quoting the Old Testament law. He's quoting a phrase that was repeated both in Leviticus and Deuteronomy and also in Exodus. And it's this phrase that says, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. I'd like for us to look at... um, the, the context of this Old Testament passage that Jesus is bringing up. So if you have your Bibles with you, turn with me to Leviticus chapter 24. Leviticus chapter 24. 
Oftentimes, I think in church, we joke about how Leviticus is, is uh, everyone's least favorite book of the Bible. Uh, but it is important for us to be anchored in the Old Testament uh, as we try to understand the new. I think it's, uh, there's many interesting things in Leviticus that we can better understand Jesus' words, uh, the better we understand them. Leviticus chapter 24 will be in verses 17 uh, to the end of the chapter almost, 17 through 22. Leviticus 24, 17 through 22. It says, if a man kills anyone, he must be put to death. Whoever kills an animal is to make restitution for it, life for life. If any man inflicts permanent injury on his neighbor, whatever he has done is to be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Whatever injury he inflicted on the person, the same is to be inflicted on him. Whoever kills an animal is to make restitution for it, but whoever kills a person is to be put to death. You are to have the same law for the resident aliens and the native because I am the Lord your God. So this is part of the Old Testament judicial law. Um, this, is, this was a piece of the judicial law. If you remember several weeks ago, we talked about the distinctions of the Old Testament law being the moral law, the judicial law, and the ceremonial law. Now Jesus came and fulfilled the ceremonial law so that we don't sacrifice goats and sheep and pigeons and all sorts of stuff like that. Um, and the, the, the judicial law of Israel was in some sense fulfilled at the culmination of Israel because it, it, it does not specifically apply to us today. Although I think that it can very easily be argued that we would be wise to take the general intent of the Old Testament judicial law and apply it to us today. But what's interesting is that most of the Old Testament judicial law is rooted in God's moral law. So the judicial part of this law says everyone who kills another, anyone who murders another is to be put to death. Or if an eye is stabbed out by one person, uh, the person who stabbed the eye out should have his eye lost. It, restitution is to be made, part for part, limb for limb, fraction for f- fracture for fracture. And uh, that is the Old Testament judicial law. But the reason that that judicial law piece is there is because of God's moral law. The reason why somebody is to be killed if they, if they murder somebody else is because of God's moral law, God's holiness. Um, there was a, a, a TV talk show host uh, from I think the 80s or 90s who had said, I'm not going to take Christians seriously uh, on, their, on their crying against abortion until they, until they stand up against the death penalty. He said, I'm not, I'm not going to take Christians seriously when they talk about how bad abortion is until they stand up against the death penalty. And uh, one, one pastor and theologian responded to him and said, you fail to understand, sir, that, uh, that the same principle that makes abortion wrong is the same principle that says the death penalty is a good thing. And that's the principle of the sanctity of life. The reason abortion is wrong is because God created us in his image. And the reason the death penalty is to be given to those who murder is because of the sanctity of life. And because God created that person who was murdered in cold blood in his image. And so judgment is to be carried out. And so that's the Old Testament judicial law of Israel. In Israel, it was a a crime to do uh, so many things that today we wouldn't even think about. And many of them were punished by, by some pretty um, severe punishment compared to modern terms. Uh, there, there's many stores nowadays who won't even, won't even uh, prosecute somebody who steals from them because it's not worth their time or they don't think it's that bad. And uh, we, have, we have come a long way since God, uh, God wrote uh, the first five books of the Bible. So Jesus references this passage of Leviticus chapter 24. And he says, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, but I tell you, don't resist an evildoer. 
So he, he takes the first part and he, he, he says, you've heard it said, you understand the Old Testament. I want to explain to you how this applies to you. I, I want to explain to you where you are to apply this. So he says, but I tell you, don't resist an evildoer. On the contrary, if anyone slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. As for the one who wants to sue you and take, you, and, and take your shirt, let him have your coat as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to the one who asks of you. And don't turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. So Jesus takes this principle that we find in the Old Testament and he explains it further. But what's interesting is that what Jesus does looks like it's a flat-out contradiction. It looks like he says, Here, here's the Old Testament. You've heard it said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, don't resist an evildoer. But what Jesus is doing here is he's referencing the civil law. He's referencing the judicial law. See, we have to understand the distinctions of the Old Testament law to understand what Jesus is doing here. He, he's referencing the Old Testament law and saying, this is what the Old Testament law says, but this is what it doesn't say for interpersonal relationships and conflict. Notice he doesn't say, he, he doesn't say you've heard it said, an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, but uh, if someone goes for your eye, just, just let, him, let him take both. His application is, on the contrary, if someone slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other. Now that, that phrase, if someone slaps you on your right cheek, most, most theologians that I've read will say that that was essentially understood to, to mean an insult. If somebody insults you, let him insult you again. If somebody tears you down, let him do it again. Why? Because if someone insults you, it doesn't, it doesn't do anything. You, you can stand still and, and not insult back, and not seek vengeance, and not seek retaliation in a sinful way. So the question is, is Jesus undermining the civil law when he says this? It, it, looks, it looks on the surface like Jesus is saying, you've heard it said this, but I tell you that. Is Jesus contradicting the civil law? And I would say that, like we talked about a few weeks ago, in order to fully understand that, we have to look at this scripture in the context of itself and in the context of, of the scripture at large. Um, we talked about there, there's two distinctions of biblical interpretation um, that, that are often to be made. There's two principles that are to be used when interpreting scripture. And that's to look at the immediate context of a passage and to look at the larger context of a passage. So when you're reading through scripture and something looks confusing, the way, the way you interpret it is you look at the immediate context of the passage and then you look at, okay, what does the larger context of all of scripture have to say about this? And in order to understand what Jesus is doing here, I'd like us just to briefly look at that. Um, we started studying this portion of the Sermon on the Mount uh, several weeks ago. I think it was the end of October. And so last month, November, we went all through all of, the, uh, all of Jesus' exposition of the law. And Jesus gives no qualifications, no quarters in all of those passages. And he just says, this is what is said. He says, uh, you've heard it said this, but I tell you that anyone who calls someone a fool is in danger of the fire of hell. And so we looked at all of those uh, different passages, and we understood that there are some qualifications that need to be made because Jesus called people fools. We know that when Jesus said, you can't call someone a fool, he means that you are not to sinfully call someone a fool. You're not to, out of anger, out of sinful anger, call someone a fool. When Jesus says, don't look at a woman with, with sexual desire, he means don't look at a woman you're not married to with sexual desire. He doesn't give all of the necessary qualifications in this passage. And so we also looked at last week, Jesus said, uh, two weeks ago, we, we, we talked about the passage on oaths, where Jesus says, I, I, I tell you, don't even make an oath. And the intent behind Jesus' Jesus's teaching there is, don't make an oath that you don't plan to keep. Don't make an oath that you can't uphold. Don't say something if you don't plan to follow through with that thing. And so there are qualifications 
that need to be made to this passage as well. And you might object and say, okay, well, I, I understand that, that there are qualifications that need to be made because uh, obviously if, if we just let everything bad happen to us, we'll die, we'll become doormats, people will walk over us, take advantage of us. So, but the question is, how do we know what those qualifications are supposed to be? How, how do we know, uh, are, are we just going to say, this is what it should be, this is the qualification? What does that look like? And um, some people might claim that that's, it's presumption to try to understand Jesus' qualifications. But again, I want to bring us back to how do we interpret Scripture? We interpret it in the local context and in the larger context. And the way we figure out what qualifications Jesus intends here but doesn't say is by looking at what else Jesus wrote in the Scripture. Because sometimes we forget the words, the words in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are not the only words from Jesus Christ in this book. The entire thing is inspired from Genesis to Revelation by the Holy God that we serve. And sometimes people will say, well, I'd rather read Matthew than, than Romans because Matthew is the words of Jesus. Romans is the words of the Holy Spirit. Well, why, why should we make some distinction um, that some part of the Bible is from God and some is not when the whole of the Bible is? And so if we want to understand Jesus' words in Matthew 5, we need to understand Jesus' words in all of the other passages of Scripture. And that's where we'll be going uh, today as well. John 1.1 says Jesus is the Word, um, and I think we should, we should treat it that way, that the entire Word of God is inspired by the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So to understand the context of Jesus' words here, when he says don't retaliate, don't seek vengeance, I'd like us all to turn to, to Romans chapter 12. If you have your Bibles, turn to Romans chapter 12 for me. We're going to be starting in verse 19. Romans chapter 12, 19. Romans 12, 19. Um, I'm going to finish reading Romans 12 and we'll pause before, before we continue. Romans 12, 19 through the end says, Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, I will avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to, give him something to drink. And in doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So if you have that passage in front of you, which, which it's important to, to keep the word of God with you, and, and uh, I hope you do. If you have that passage in front of you, you'll see that Paul says a very similar thing to Jesus right there. He says, don't take venge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, I will, prevent, I will avenge and I will repay. It's similar as Jesus says here, don't resist an evildoer. If he slaps you on the cheek, don't slap him back. If he insults you, don't insult him back, but just let him do it again. And so the same sentiment is being echoed, and it's clear that, that, um, that this is what Paul is intending, and it's the same thing that Jesus is intending. But what some people do, and we've talked about this before, so I won't belabor it too much, what some people do is they, they separate uh, the books of the Bible from each other as if it wasn't written as one cohesive message. And while it's clear that there are some distinctions in, in different passages of Scripture, the, the chapters and verses were not initially there. And so Romans 12 leads straight into Romans 13. And so if we read what we just read about not taking vengeance in the context of understanding that Romans 13 comes right after it with no separation, we'll see that Paul says, Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. And those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. 
Do you want to be free from the fear of the one in authority? Then drive the speed limit. I mean, do you want to be free from uh, the fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right and you will be commended. For the one who is in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. For they are God's servants, agents of wrath, to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. So I know that's a lot of scripture there. Um, But at the end of chapter 12, in summary, at the end of chapter 12, the Apostle Paul is saying, don't take vengeance, but leave room for God's wrath. And many of us read that and say, okay, I'll leave room for God's wrath. That happens when the person dies. That happens at the end of time. God will judge them for their sin. But that's not all that Paul is talking about here. He's saying, don't take vengeance, but leave room for God's wrath because everyone is to be subject to the governing authorities and those who are not subject to godly government will be punished and justly punished for their sin and for their crime. And note that Paul says, the authorities do not bear the sword for no reason. The authorities do not have the right of capital punishment, as we read in Leviticus, for no reason. So we as Christians are to be merciful. We're we're, we're to respond to people. When they slap us with insults, we're to stand there. When they slap us with insults, we're not to slap them back. That doesn't mean we can't respond. That that doesn't mean we can't have have a a retort. But that does mean we can't sinfully retaliate and sinfully uh, seek vengeance on the other person. We are to be humble and meek, as we talked about many weeks ago. And God's vengeance is to be carried out by the government. God's vengeance is to be carried out by those in authority. I'd like us to read again um, all of these verses that we're talking about, just, just very briefly, um, with the context of this in mind. You've heard it said that, you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. So, so Jesus is referencing Old Testament, and then he says, but I tell you, don't resist an evildoer. If anyone slaps you, don't slap him back. If anyone wants to, to sue you and take your shirt, let him have the other. Don't get into unnecessary and petty conflicts with the world. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go the extra mile. That's where that phrase comes from. Go the extra mile. And then in verse 42, it says, Give to the one who asks of you and don't turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Jesus here, just like the Apostle Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is not condemning retaliation. He's condemning unjust revenge. He's not condemning response. He's condemning vengeance. He's condemning the bitter person who's ready to throw back an insult when an insult comes to him. I think it's interesting to note that all of Jesus' responses to the eye for eye, tooth for tooth are not something that inflict permanent physical pain. I don't think Jesus is contradicting himself at all between, of course he isn't because he's God, but I don't even think he's, he's, he's separating the old from the new between verses 38 and verses 39. Because in what we just read in Leviticus, it says eye for eye, tooth for tooth. And, and it specifically says the, the equal punishment is to be given to the wrongdoer if that person has inflicted something on somebody that causes permanent damage. So there is to be just punishment for people who inflict permanent damage on someone else. So Jesus says, you've heard it said permanent damage is to be taken care of by godly government, but I tell you this, when people slap you, when people insult you, when they take your stuff, don't retaliate. Don't, don't, don't fight back sinfully. Don't, don't seek vengeance. When people do something that's not going to cause permanent harm, we don't need to stand there and unnecessarily fight so that we can save a, a $15 t-shirt or something like that. In the book of Proverbs, in chapter 19, verse 11, the scriptures say, a, person wields, uh, a person's wisdom yields patience. 
says this, it is to one's glory to overlook an offense. It's to one's glory to overlook an offense. When somebody wrongs you, it's to your glory to overlook it and keep moving. Not, not to overlook it by stuffing it away and holding bitterness against them, but to truly forgive them, overlook it, and keep moving. There are, there, are, there are times where we need to address sin in someone's life. When they wrong us, we need to have a conversation about it. There are other times when we just need to say, they probably didn't mean that, and keep moving. Or they did mean that, and it doesn't matter, and keep moving. It's to one's glory to overlook an offense. So there's some who have taken this passage and say, okay, I grant that, um, that it's the government's duty to enact justice. I understand that. And so does that mean that the Christian is not to defend themselves in case of danger and in case of harm? Some people will take this passage and say that we don't have a Christian duty or a Christian right to defend our families or to defend ourselves in case of threat. And I'll answer that in a few different ways. The first one I want to note is what I said just a minute ago. That Jesus' response to eye for eye, tooth for tooth, is not to say that punishment is not to be made to evildoers. His response is to say, when you are inflicted with pain that doesn't have any lasting effect, just keep moving. It doesn't matter. When you have to walk an extra mile, good, you get some exercise. It's not Jesus' words. But when you have to do some of these things that aren't causing permanent physical damage, just, just take them in stride and keep moving. Now, if somebody keeps walking over you like a doormat, you don't, need to, you don't need to continue to let that happen. We'll talk about that in a few minutes. But it's very important for us to note that Jesus is not talking about permanent physical harm. So, is there a Christian case for self-defense? Well, some people think yes, some people think no. There's a, a pastor, pretty well-known preacher named John Piper, who uh, is somewhat infamously on the record for saying that he believes that Christians uh, pretty much don't need to own guns and that if a robber came into his family... Uh, or somebody came in to harm his family and potentially even kill his family, that he would not put that man to the ground. That, that, he, that he would let that happen. And as, as, a, as a father of his kids, he would let someone come and harm his family without stopping them because of his interpretation of some of these scriptures. Um, and I believe that that really doesn't do the most justice to what Jesus is talking about here and what the whole council of scripture talks about when it comes to this idea of Christian self-defense. I understand the heart of wanting to say, look, this, this person's coming in here. I, I don't know if he's saved. And so if he kills me and my family, uh, you know, that maybe he'll live and continue to have uh, a, a chance to accept Christ. Well, the problem is the scripture teaches in a just society he'll be put to death anyway. And so now he has failed his Christian duty to protect and to provide for his family. When we as men are told to protect our families, that doesn't mean just to lock the doors at night. That means if something comes through, through those doors, to stop them. To stop something like that from happening. When Jesus says, if they slap you, let them slap you twice, it doesn't mean that somebody can come kill your family and you have no responsibility to stand up for righteousness. So where does that come from? Where do those ideas come from, Zach? You haven't brought up any scriptures yet. Turn to Exodus chapter 22, uh, verses 2 through 3. Exodus chapter 22, verses 2 through 3. This is speaking of the judicial law of God. Exodus chapter 22, verses 2 through 3. As Chuck used to say, I don't have the scriptures on the screen, so that way you bring your Bibles with you. Exodus chapter 22, verses 2 through 3. Um, it says, um, if a thief is caught in the act of breaking in, 
and is beaten to death, no one is guilty of bloodshed. But if this happens after sunrise, the householder is guilty of bloodshed. So it says, if, if someone breaks into your house and is killed, at nighttime, you're not guilty of bloodshed. But if they do it in the daytime, you are guilty of bloodshed. What, what, is the, what is the difference there between sunlight and darkness? If someone breaks into your house in the daytime to steal something versus the nighttime, what is the difference there? Why is someone, why, in the Old Testament, why is someone guilty of bloodshed if they stop someone at night and they kill them, but they don't stop them in the daytime? Well, I think it's that light uncovers things and light makes things clear. And so if someone breaks into your house in the daytime and it's very clear they don't have any weapons or intent to hurt anybody on them and they're stealing things, it's, it's probably better you let the thief go and you, you contact law enforcement or, or, you, or you, I don't know, flatten his tires or something so he can't leave, detain him and make it so that justice can be made for his thievery. But if someone breaks in at nighttime, you don't, you don't really necessarily know what he's there for. Because especially at this time when they didn't have lights that they could just turn on, if someone's in your house at nighttime and they don't belong there, they could be there to cause harm to your family. And so this scripture verse is saying that if someone is coming in to harm your family or at nighttime and you can't tell and you kill them, you're not responsible for bloodshed. Why? Because there is a duty to protect the family. Uh, in Luke chapter 22, uh, you don't have to turn there, I'll turn there real quick. Uh, in Luke chapter 22, Jesus tells his disciples this. He says, uh, but now uh, if you have a purse, take it and also a bag. And if you don't have your sword, sell, if you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one. A lot of people wonder, why did, why did Jesus tell his disciples to, to go buy a sword? Well, what is a sword used for? They're not going to cut enough turkeys, although Israel does consume more turkeys per capita than any other country, interestingly enough. But they're not going to cut up turkeys. They're not doing things like that. A sword is used for self-defense. Jesus' disciples were not to go out and, and fight people, but a sword is used for self-defense. And Jesus said, sell your cloak and go buy a sword. When someone defends themselves against evil, this is, this is really important. Pe people say, well, Scripture says don't repay evil for evil. If an evil man comes into your household to harm your family, and you defend yourself against him, and he dies in the process, you are not repaying evil for evil. You're repaying evil for good. Because godly justice is a good thing. Protecting your family is a good thing. Not, not letting evil just run rampant in society is a good thing. So... When, when people will say to, to those who say, well, I think self-defense is, 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 a, is a category that's, that's biblically praised. And, 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 and they make a claim like that. And someone says, well, you, you can't, you can't uh, respond with evil for evil. No, you're responding with good to evil when you defend your family against people who are breaking God's law. Another thing to note, because there, there, this, is, I think, is a somewhat controversial topic in the church world. Um, and so I, I, I pretty firmly hold the opinion that the man is the protector and provider of the household, and that includes if someone is trying to harm your household. Um, but another thing to note, to even these people who say, I think the scripture teaches that we shouldn't defend ourselves, that the government should defend themselves. Okay, in a society of serfs and peasants, that's fine. But in the United States of America, we do have a different governmental system than most countries. We are a government for the people and by the people. Being a citizen in the United States of America is in some sense an office. You are the one that picks your leaders. And so because of that, because being a citizen in the United States is in some sense an office, as a citizen you have a duty to protect the common good of your country. 
in some cities in the United States, there, there are laws on the books, and not laws from the 1800s, but laws that were passed, some of them as recent as 2013, that say every household is required to have a firearm. Why is that? Because the citizens are responsible to keep the peace of their society when, op when police officers are not there. When, when, when the government can't help keep, keep the peace, the real government, the people, th those who should be the governing body of, of the society are the ones who are called upon to keep the peace. So again, Jesus' words here are not to undermine civil justice, but to, old, to uphold interpersonal forgiveness. His words here when he says, turn the other cheek, are not to say when someone is a murderer, you let them keep murdering. When someone wants to steal, you let them keep stealing. When someone wants to hurt other people, you let them keep hurting other people. His analysis here has nothing to do with criticizing civil justice. His analysis is when someone comes and hurts you, you must be first and foremost about interpersonal forgiveness, not seeking vengeance and not making something not making something into something that it's not. And so if somebody harms, let's say somebody steals from you, do you have the right to, to, uh, to seek justice? I think you do, and I think you have a duty. What do you not have the right to do? Steal from them. If somebody steals your wallet, you don't go steal their backpack. You can contact authorities, and you can, you can try to make things right, and, and, and you can have justice uh, given to that person, and I think you probably should. Because the society of criminals that are allowed to do what they do only, uh, only increases the population of criminals. You get more of what you subsidize. And so I think if somebody, if somebody steals from you, I think you should do, do the right thing and, and get that person to learn that stealing is not okay. But what you shouldn't do is steal back from them. Jesus doesn't say if they, take your if they take your shirt, take theirs. He says if they take your shirt, give them theirs. And because of Romans 13, where it says the government is to be enacting justice, the government is to be holding the line, you should contact the authorities and, and get somebody involved so that these types of things don't continue to happen. Sin should be, um, should be punished so that people realize what they're doing is wrong and hopefully turn to Christ. We can do all we want to make the world we live in a better place. We can try to make our society nice and our roads cleaner and our neighborhoods safe. But if people, if people don't know Christ, number one, it won't, it won't really work. And number two, it doesn't matter. Because the most important thing is people's eternity with Christ. And so when people try to wrong us, when non-believers try to wrong us, when even believers sometimes wrong us, we are to show the light of Jesus Christ first and foremost. Or to show, show the light of Christ first and foremost. So we go through all that and we come to this verse where Jesus says, Give to the one who asks of you and don't turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. This quite simply means we're to help those who are in need. When someone asks something of us, we should use wisdom and give. Don't turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. But as with all of the statements that Jesus makes in this passage, there are caveats. There are caveats to all of these things. As I said two weeks ago, if I tell you, never cross the yellow line in the road, you might take that and say, I'll never cross the yellow line. But there are obviously caveats to that rule. If somebody's walking on the side of the road, please cross the yellow line so it's safer for them. If there's a bicyclist, cross the yellow line. If there's a moped, cross the line and pass them unless you want to go 25 the whole way. There are caveats to, to many things that we say. And in the same way for Jesus Christ, there are caveats. And so um, this verse here that says, give to the one who asks of you and don't turn away the one who wants from you. Um, people say, okay, so then any poor person who asks of me, do I need to give to them? I, I don't think so. I, I don't think every single time that, that someone is asking for something of you, 
you have to give because sometimes it's done disingenuously. If someone comes to you in need, you, must cert- you should certainly give to them and help their need. If someone comes to you in true need, we as Christians should be the first people to help them. But if a panhandler walks up to you in the city and says, hey, I need a few dollars to buy some food, and you talk with him, and you understand that he is a fully capable man who doesn't have a job because he gets more money walking up to people on the street, you should not give to him when he asks of you. Because you are enabling sin. Paul says in, in 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 3, verse 10, he says, if you don't work, you don't eat. The one who's unwilling to work shall not eat. And John Smith stole that in the, probably the 1600s or whenever that was. But if, if you don't work, you don't eat is what scripture says. And so when someone is unwilling to work and he comes to you and wants, and wants money so that he can subsidize his lazy and sinful lifestyle, we shouldn't do that. But if somebody is in true need, we should be the first people to run to them and help them. We should be the first people to give to them, to in some cases lend to them and let them borrow what we have. We should be the first people to do that. Lynn, you can come on up. In summary of, of uh, Jesus and Scripture's teaching today, uh, there's just a few kind of bullet points that I want us to just, just take away from here. Number one is that uh, Jesus, in verse 38, he upholds biblical law and justice. He upholds the idea uh, that justice is to be had. 